So I'm back in Copenhagen, Brian, you're back in Stockholm, and life isn't what it used to be when we had a, <laughs> a complimentary minibar and a beach nearby and 900, maybe even more, like-minded arbitration lawyers to hang around with for almost a week in, in Sydney. How are you handling the, the transition so far? It was such a bubble to be there. I mean, to put 850 people of like-minded individuals in a small room, what was pretty big room, and then go out together afterwards and then wake up and see each other again. It was like camp and I'm having post-camp withdrawal. Good thing then that we are listening to and and uh, pushing out a lot of content from, from the conference and from exactly. the discussions we had with various people. We can buy us a few extra weeks of transition time. Well, I think this is probably where we differ culturally, but I was the type of person who would go to camp and meet people and say, you're my best friend forever. We're going to keep in touch all the time and just like help each other grow in this thing called life. And I feel like you had a little bit more of a realistic version of that. Yeah, I didn't go to camp because I was a, a lonely <laughs> Swedish go. child. <laughs> <There you go. laughs> I lived in the countryside already. It was more, it was survival. Right. People came to you. That's how country yeah, you were. <laughs> that is right. So... Um, What's life like? We haven't spoken in a while. No, we haven't. Um, no, it's just getting back to work. I mean, back to the normal grind and, and billing like we talked about in a couple episodes ago. <laughs> uh, but that's it. I mean, we are speaking on a... Me and you are giving a talk in a week or two. Yeah, even more probably. You're talking about the, the arbitration lunch in Stockholm? Yes. Yeah, we have to figure out what to talk about. I, w I was thinking the thing the thing that worries me the most with this because it's an it's an informal setting with with people that where we know at least of and some of them we know pretty well and so I'm not worried about the the contents of what we're going to talk about because I assume it's going to be like a a podcast right <laughs> episode more or less uh, the I guess the invitation is is uh, is open ended but the the plan is to do something about thinking outside of the box in international arbitration my worry is that we probably have to do it in Swedish which supposedly is the language that I speak the best, but I'm very uncomfortable talking to you or about arbitration in Swedish. So maybe we should talk about it in English. I mean, I don't mind. Yeah, but that's also, you know, embarrassing. <laughs> I, don't I know, because then you're going to have to show people how your English is, and then everyone's going to take the first 10 minutes to judge your level of English and compare it to their own and not listen to a thing you say. Yeah, I mean, I meant actually that it's embarrassing for me to admit in a public setting that I would rather not do this in my own native language. <laughs> I don't know why. You're it so just feels posh. like I, I, I should be able to speak Swedish You're so generally. Posh. I don't know. I'm, but maybe I'm we'll record it for the podcast. So then we'll say we'll have to do it in English. Mm, maybe. I don't think they would want that, though. Shouldn't it be like an informal conversation? with? <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> All right, but enough of our musings. We're having like a, a work discussion with our <laughs> listeners listening. The inner workings of how the arbitration station works. You mean as opposed to all the other thoroughly researched, structured yes. audio segments that we churn out? Which is the beauty of what we did in Sydney, because we have, especially in this episode, three heavy hitters in the industry. Um, we start with Wendy Miles QC, 
and she ringed in one of her right-hand women, uh, Nicola Swan. And what we talked about there was a article that they put out, but it was more of like a press release that they put out um, at Deborah Wise and Plimpton, where Wendy is a partner. And, and Nicola is a senior associate. And Nicola is a senior associate. Um, and it dealt with a announcement by Canada of the creation of an independent Canadian ombudsperson for responsible enterprise. So we kind of use that as the initial talking point to then launch into how arbitration intersects with human rights and also with climate change, which is something that Wendy has been um, the lead person in the arbitration community to kind of tackle that issue. Two two uh, big picture people talking uh, big picture big picture subject. Right. I think we're far away from from the nitty gritty of. Uh, drafting uh, statement of claim. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's kind of just talking about how it works and kind of hot topics that came up. So that was interesting. It was very interesting. And then we were also talking to Klaus von Vorbisser, who, of course, is a seasoned counsel and arbitrator from Mexico and not, as some people would assume, the architect of the Sydney Opera House. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right, right. <laughs> And uh, you forgot? No, 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 I I did. I just don't know if everyone found that nugget because that was some comedy. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it really was. So he was one of, I think, four senior arbitrators who spoke at ICA during one of the luncheons and what was, in theory, a very good idea to get four people up in sort of a round table and do 10, 15 minutes each on their careers looking back and also discussing what they would have done differently had they known what they now know. Right. Problem is that you can't put hundreds of arbitration people with, with food and wine in the same room and then expect them to listen. So there was a lot of uh, other discussions going on at the same time. So it, it, was, it was a hard format in practice. I don't even know how, how, it could have been, how they could have done it better. Uh, probably by instructing everybody to just be very, very quiet. Right. But that's pro- probably boom. That would have been in vain. So anyway, we, we thought we'd invite Klaus, and he generously agreed to come and talk to us on a similar topic in a more quiet setting, just the, the three of us. And it turned into, I think, a very nice intergenerational discussion among the different uh, about the different approaches to, to the trade craft that you'll find in different generations. And he has, of course, been... been active in the business for I think four decades even more maybe so he has some interesting perspectives definitely and then we round out the episode with a kind of an update on an earlier happy fun time topic to talk with Mark Cantor about um, an issue that he found that he spoke about at uh, the ECA in Sydney um, about arbitration clauses that were included in summer law clerk employment agreements in the United States, where the law firm Munger Tolis was um, attracted a lot of public and law faculty student pressure for these arbitration clauses. It came out in a Harvard Law Journal, I believe, um, about this topic and basically saying any discrimination would go to private arbitration. And we kind of link that to the Stormy Daniels issue with President Trump. Although it is. Which, by the way, was not a happy fun time segment that was an actual substantive segment i'm very happy that we managed to squeeze that in into the serious part of the podcast definitely um but anything with mark Cantor is happy fun time to me <laughs> yeah i was talking about the stormy thing with it oh, but yeah. you're right oh, yeah, oh yeah. it was mark is a right. mark is a, is a natural speaker and uh, now an independent arbitrator and an adjunct professor at georgetown uh, law university yeah, they have a uh, i should know this because i used to be there university uh, whatever the law school at Georgetown University, <laughs> uh, and he, fun fact, 
arbitrated me in my first pre-moot of my first moot at American University uh, and really uh, grilled me um, on investment arbitration and I had no idea what I was doing. It was for the Frankfurt moot. So I don't think it made it to air, but that was something that how we led the discussion. And it's funny to see this all come full circle. So three discussions with four people. And first off is Nicholas Vaughn and Wendy Miles from Dead Boys and Plimpton. Yes, and before we, sorry, before we uh, go to them, let's thank the Swedish Arbitration Association and Manhammer Svartling for sending us there and uh, contact us at uh, the ARB station on Twitter and the arbitration station at gmail.com. All right, because there's no happy fun time this time. No, and I feel like people don't get there. They They don't get to our amazing sponsors and our contact information. So I thought we would lead with it this time. Okay, you should have told me. I was so happy with my uh, intro to to Nicola and Wendy. Now we have to do it all over again. Go for it, Joel. <laughs> I won't. Just let's Please. enter music, enter discussion. We are here with Wendy Miles and Nicholas Swan, both from Debovise and Plimpton in the UK. Welcome. Thank How are you guys you, doing? Thank you. Very well, thank you. Very we're having well. a little duet today, talking about uh, some interesting issues that we're going to maybe not initially seem like an arbitration station topic, but we'll weave it in uh, accordingly into something that uh, you two have been working on. Uh, so the reason why this came up is we read an article um, online that had to do with a uh, core was the name of it. It's a Canadian ombudsperson. Uh, ombudsperson, not an ombudsman. Yeah, and mm-hmm. let's just pause here. Th- that ombudsman or ombudsperson is one of two words that have been exported from the Swedish language into the English language. It's actually yeah. a Swedish word. Ombud. Yeah. yeah, ombudsman is a Swedish word. The other one is smörgåsbord. Those are the two <laughs> claims to fame we have on the Swedish <laughs> You should know this as a bilingual yeah. person. Smörgåsbord. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but we pronounced it differently in, our, in, in the U.S. We call it smörgåsborg. Anyway, uh, do you guys want to tell us a little bit about this, how it's going to work in Canada and how it's been proposed and how it relates to human rights? We can. Thanks, Brian. Thanks, thanks, John. Thanks for the invitation to come in. It's very exciting. The, um, the core, the Canadian Ombudsperson for Responsible Enterprise, um, is a new innovation. We don't know how it's going to work precisely because there isn't a whole lot of detail but we know what it's intended to do and what its mandate is, and that's to investigate, report on, and issue recommendations regarding alleged human rights abuses linked to Canadian companies. So it's a Canadian ombudsman, as the name would suggest, Mm -hmm. being core, um, and it's the Canadian response, governmental, but also corporate and uh, civil society response to the increasing concern of business and human rights. So it's the Canadian form, if you like, of implementing the UNGPs, the United Nations Guiding Principles on Business and Human Rights. What um, I find particularly interesting about this innovation from Canada is the industries it affects. So 57% of global mining companies are registered on one of two of Canada's uh, stock exchanges. So there's an enormous um, reach into the mining natural resources industry on this. Now Canada's not the first country to take steps either in regulation or or some form of industry or governmental initiative uh, to reflect or um, implement in some way the UNGPs. 
We've seen it in France, Switzerland, the UK has a modern slavery act. Nothing in Sweden or, or, or Denmark. Actually. Sorry, no. <laughs> um, but, but for the UN non-financial disclosure, uh, non-financial reporting directive, so that, that covers the EU. And obviously in the US there's a bit as well. But um, it's Canada's focus on the mining sector in particular, as well as oil and gas, which I think is going to become increasingly less important, but I do think mining and extraction of minerals is going yeah. to become more important. So I think this is a really, really interesting development. And what is the corporate buy-in? To what extent is this something that the Canadian government is, is doing as a, as a public effort and as compared to the, uh, the corporations themselves in the extractive industries being involved in, in drafting and buying into this? So I think globally um, what we've seen is a lot of these initiatives have been corporate-led which is really interesting and potentially, you know, when you, when you think about it, initially counterintuitive. But it's come, the, the steps that corporations have taken in relation to human rights and broader, um, broader environmental and climate change related issues have come in response to a number of factors, um, but partly the UNGPs, partly activists, activism, so, so shareholder, activist shareholder claims or NGO claims, um, coming against corporates, but uh, partly actions um, by investors, um, sort of not wanting to invest in particular industries or particular um, corporations engaged in certain practices. Um, a lot of it's PR, brand p- protection. Um, so it may seem self-serving, but my own view is, whatever the motive, if people are doing the right thing, right. then then let's lean in and embrace that. Nicola, did you want to add anything on the Canadian incentives in particular? Thanks, Wendy. So so part of the background to the ombudsperson being set up is, is a set of litigation that, that has been running in Canada. And I think because... Um, Individuals are being uh, are more likely now to, to look at bringing litigation for breaches of, of, of human rights norms, etc. That has has pushed this issue for corporates into the spotlight, and so this ombudsperson that the the background to it has been some of this very high profile litigation in Canada in particular, um, Canada and the US. And so as, as a result of seeing that litigation coming through, um, the, the government in Canada decided to take this more proactive step of putting in place this ombudsperson who will uh, have the power to make recommendations against uh, corporates that, that won't have the force of law per se, uh, but uh, will be very persuasive and, and certainly in terms of um, encouraging compliance and encouraging steps taken by, by corporates. It, it will be really interesting to see how that uh, transpires as, as the first cases start to be referred. But when you say recommendations, is it recommendations for them to come into compliance or it's a recommended sanctions and who would enforce those sanctions? So it's really, really, really interesting and it's very sort of um, a very novel approach, I think. So, so they can recommend uh, compensation payments to individuals. They can recommend oh. um, the, com- the company to put in place uh, policies, procedures to comply with those policies, etc. Uh, and then uh, the the uh, ombudsperson can also refer uh, a criminal complaint to the criminal system. And that's where you might see the recommendations as such sort of hardening into more traditional legal 
uh, structures because it's it's going to be the first port of call for those types of, of complaints. But right. if a company has had a recommendation to make compensation payments to a, to a set of individuals or a class of individuals, the onus will be on the company to, to, to explain if it's going to take a different position and, and either make or not make those payments. So it really ups the ante right. uh, in, this, in this area. And because there are so many, as Wendy said, uh, particularly um, mining companies that are listed on the Canadian stock exchanges, uh, you know, this this has the potential for very wide reach. Yeah, it's not just what, what we think of as Canadian companies. It's also right. international companies that have a presence by way of registry in Canada. Mm-hmm. Precisely, yeah. and the transnational reach, obviously, of the um, the core sort of mandate um, is is akin to the FCPA or the UK Bribery Act. So, so wherever these companies are operating anywhere in the world, this ombudsman will have jurisdiction. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, anytime you hear about the UN guiding principles, the, I mean, the main critique is about enforcement, and there's really no place to take a, a grievance that ha, that can be lodged against these companies. So, I mean, if you think about the enforcement of that, and then if we link it to arbitration, how do you see arbitration as the mechanism to enforce grievances that come up via human rights violations? Do you, th- if there's a link at all? I think, I think, well... You can link arbitration to anything because all it is really is an order of dispute resolution. So, so you know, anything in life involves disputes. My children would tell you that I use arbitration on a daily basis. <laughs> um, usually, I'm the losing party. Your household uh, is a New York Convention jurisdiction, <laughs> right? That's right. It's enforcing court. Um, but um, the. Um, it's interesting because the, the three industries that come up in relation to core, primarily mining, also oil and gas, but the third is the garment industry, right. so apparel. And that um, links nicely to uh, two arbitrations that have just been completed, settled at the Permanent Court of Arbitration involving the Bangladesh Factory Accord. So you recall the Rana Plaza fire mm-hmm. in Bangladesh. Gosh, it's almost about 10 years ago now. And at the end of the fight was the factory that burned and the workers couldn't get out and the conditions, the the operating conditions, um, were the cause of that. Now, a set of NGO, labor union-related NGOs or labor NGOs in Switzerland managed to negotiate the Bangladesh Factory Accord, which is an accord between the factory workers, the Bangladeshi factory workers on the one hand, and 200 separate apparel brands on the other hand a lot of US apparel brands a lot of America a lot of um, European apparel brands mm-hmm. and big names and I won't name any on the station but they're all on the um, accord website and they put in the accord it's the obligations were very simple because of problems that had happened with apparel brands, in particular Nike, about 20 years ago. I remember that. Yeah, a lot of garment manufacturers got rid of their vertical integration. So they don't own their factories. They simply have a, 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 a sort of services agreement with the factories to manufacture. So the factory owners are responsible for the factory conditions and the Bangladesh state is responsible for regulating those. So the, the brands, in one sense, don't have any control over that. What the Accord did was create control through a carrot and stick approach. And essentially, those 200 brands agreed that every factory they used in Bangladesh, they would uh, fund a health and safety report. And if the health and safety report made recommendations for improvements, 
they would fund the improvements. And some of these would just move boxes away from in front of a fire exit, make sure locks, doors can open from the inside. Mm -hmm. And some of them didn't cost a penny. And then the third, the stick, was if the factory doesn't implement the recommendations and there were inspection obligations, then they had to withdraw um, from that services contract. So the two disputes arose um, and they were heard in the Permanent Court of Arbitration. They weren't public insofar as the names of the particular brands involved weren't public and the details of the hearings. But, but there were two separate disputes between one individual company and who who was then the on the other side. So of the, the claimant dispute. was the the the, 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 the workers, the yeah. collective of the union. So all of the claimants, sort of almost a class action. Yeah, exactly. And a movable class, right? The yeah. current employees, and the the claims against individual brands. Mm -hmm. um, so the. Um, there's some information on the website, as I say, about um, the settlement and the resolution. But what's most exciting about that process is the accord had a finite life and was due to expire, and the parties renewed the accord for a continued period. So, you know, it's that constant balance we have between confidentiality. So a corporation will submit to this process if it can contain its brand damage right. by submitting to this private process versus the public interest in transparency. And I think the PCA here did a very good job of balancing those Was it two. with the uncertrolled rules as the applicable framework, or do you know, or was it more of a pure ad hoc? Maybe that's too nerdy a question. <laughs> no, I, 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 can't, I can't remember. Can you remember? Well, that's I, a quick I, Googling away. Yes, just, it is um, a quick Googling away. Out of curiosity. Away. My memory is they, they had bespoke rules, but mm. um, I may be misremembering that. But it was confidentiality in any event as the sort of the default. Yes, yeah. the parties had to agree to waive it. That's mm. right. That's right. And then presumably that played a part also in, in getting the accord renewed. It might have been more complicated if it was all brought into the public domain, this, these two disputes. Yeah. Precisely, yeah. So, you know, things you possibly can't do with other forms of dispute resolution, but, you know, essentially what you're trying to do here is protect the workers' rights. Exactly. And if you're achieving that, then, then that's a success. And if you're achieving that with some elements of um, confidentiality still preserved, then I think ultimately that's still in the public interest to protect those rights in a way that works for the corporates as well. This is a very good, two very good cases, and the court is a good example of, of how to bridge the divide between the arbitration world and other spheres of international law where we don't really have the really amazing enforcement measures that we do have right. uh, in, in international arbitration. Right. And, and the New York Convention sort of enforceability of these kinds of awards has been something that's fascinated me for a long time and we considered this in the ABA arbitration with, with South Sudan under the Comprehensive Peace Agreement. Um, it's, it's not a commercial dispute but provided you seat it in The Hague, which we did in ABA and they did in, in the Bangladesh Accord, they've um, um, Op, not opted into the commercial exception under the New York Convention. And of course a lot of states have opted into the commercial exception. So you need to look carefully if you're dealing with disputes or deciding whether to seat, where to seat disputes um, that are dealing with human rights or other non-commercial issues. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, you need to be careful where you seat them, the Hague's always safe. And I guess that was what they did with the Iran-United States Claims exactly. Tribunal as well, way exactly. back when. Exactly right. Um, 
and you know we forget about it, but 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 technically these are non-commercial, right? Um, and then it's um, it, it, this one, ABA was harder on the foreign element, um, but but this one's <coughs> easier on the foreign because you have the workers based in Bangladesh, but all the brands are ex-Bangladesh, so that satisfied the foreign component. But if you can get <coughs> so the commerciality hurdle overcome and the foreign hurdle overcome, right. pretty much the New York Convention will catch you then. So arguably it becomes enforceable. Now, how do you implement this? <laughs> it's one thing to try and enforce an award for damages, which is just about finding and recovering against assets, but trying to implement an award that, um, that involves uh, some form of specific performance in a human rights context, that could be trickier. Yeah, because even if the damages come up, it's not going to be create a dent in what these these retail companies are making. So they'll just pay it off and then not change anything of what they've been doing. Except, Brian, if you get an award against you, and even if it has nominal damages, and somebody goes to enforce that award in a jurisdiction where enforcement's public... Then you have the shame of it all. Then, then precisely <laughs> what you're trying to avoid out of Right. Yeah. Right, yeah. yet another stick. Yeah. Right, right. <laughs> so it's quite effective. And what Nicola and I have been doing a lot of recently is looking at all of these same sort of principles in the application in particular of the climate change context. Um, and you know, the, the, the sort of the, the human rights um, um, increased importance in business and global business um, and in dispute resolution is running on a parallel track and often crosses over with the protection of climate change related justice um, or, or climate change related international policy. And you know both have affected populations yep. um, who are usually not the parties to the dispute. Both involve international policy, both involve um, industry standards and, and requirements, both uh, involve uh, shareholder pressure and NGO pressure and damage to the brand, potentially, and both involve really big issues um, that um, you know, international arbitration can at least be um, involved in uh, assisting to take in the right direction or certainly not taking in the wrong direction. And what are the type of the innovations that are coming up as regards of protecting climate change and within arbitration? So there are there are, there are several. Um, one is the uh, the ICC's task force on um, climate change related disputes, which which Wendy will, will talk about in a moment. Um, another <clears throat> really interesting uh, set of recommendations that has come out recently is the task force on climate related financial disclosure, um, and that is a, a task force that was set up by the G20 um, to essentially um, look at the climate-related financial risk to business um, from the increasing regulation of climate change emissions, etc., post-Paris Agreement mm -hmm. on climate change. Um, and what this task force has done is, is has published recommendations about a year ago now, which effectively say that corporates should, especially publicly listed corporates, should be disclosing their climate-related financial risk alongside all of their other financial risk, which in itself is not that revolutionary because if your climate-related financial risk is material, then you should be disclosing it alongside your other material securities disclosures. But the, but the concept of it is, is quite new and, and corporates are, are, are starting to 
learn to deal with it with this and are starting to I think importantly see climate related financial risk as a real financial risk and not just something which can be pushed off into the future definitely um, and a big catalyst for that is the Paris Agreement and, and it's the fact that that um, countries are now regulating more and more on emissions, carbon emissions. Yeah. Uh, and, and what has been really exciting is that th- these were a set of non-binding recommendations from this independently set up task force, but they've been picked up most recently in the UK and by the EU, who, who both have, the, the EU has, an high, has a high level expert group on sustainable finance, which has really endorsed the recommendations of the task force. And again, in the UK, just a couple of weeks ago, the UK's uh, Green Finance Task Force, which was set up by the government, has also fully endorsed the recommendations of this uh, G20 task force and have heralded that the UK and the EU are going to be looking to bring those recommendations into uh, regulation in the next two or three years, which is a very short time frame for a very new issue. Um, You see it also in the legal field being mirrored on what's happening in the corporate side because you have CSRM groups popping up in different law firms. and then you and now they're involved in all the contract negotiations and even in the dispute management. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So you kind of see it in in our field, kind of reflecting the innovation. No, exactly. And and the focus is disclosure, and this parallels exactly with the human rights context because all of the regulation and, and legislation that is coming through is all about disclosure of your management of these risks. And if you can show that as a corporate that you have thought carefully about your specific risks from your operations and the countries in which you are operating and you've and you've looked at your governance your strategy your risk factors how you're going to be dealing with these with these risks uh, and you can show that you've put those into practice then you should be in a good position to say look we can't avoid every scenario but we've done what we can to mitigate the risks that we we face particularly and, and exactly that same thing as what the the TCFD the task force on climate related financial disclosures has done in the climate um, sphere. So you can see the, the human rights and the climate change sort of disclosure requirements building very, very similarly and right. in, importantly becoming more and more crystallised, more and more hard law. We're sort of at the soft law stage, but yeah. you can see in both fields it's becoming more and more real for corporates. So the ones, the corporates that are aware of these trends and aware of the of the voluntary sort of position and the various recommendations, the ones that are, are conscious of that are going to be much better placed when this becomes reality, which in the case of these climate recommendations looks like it'll be the next two or three years. And if you had a dispute that came up that had to do with a violation of environmental regulation, and then you had a corporation that has taken these steps and has disclosed things, it could be a way to kind of eliminate liability? Perhaps. Well, well, really interestingly, to, to that is the challenge for, for for corporates to make sure that what they are saying they're doing, they they are actually doing. And it's there's a good been some mm. exactly. There's been some um, litigation in the High Court in the UK, which has looked exactly at that point um, recently. So, and there's litigation in the US as well, which is which is looking at that. So, but we don't have the, the Paris Agreement anymore, so it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I bet well. you do. I know. <laughs> exactly. Because you, because you can't actually withdraw from it until nine days after the next election. So 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 watch this space. <laughs> <laughs> President President Obama was wise to that. Agreed. Yeah. Agreed. Um, but with the focus on. Um, um, the focus of the TCFD um, on on the resilience um, of organisations' strategy in response to climate change. Um, 
you know, what are they doing in terms of the own business approach to deal with climate change risk? Not only covers the litigation risk, the potential claims against them that are climate change related, but also how is that business moving in accordance with the um, sort of overriding international policy objectives of the Paris Agreement. And that's the reason why I think we're seeing lots of law firms and other service providers sort of pop up with uh, sort of climate change environment related practice groups because the cost of investment mm -hmm. of moving this industry in this direction is absolutely huge and it covers all aspects of legal practice um, unlike human rights which is sort of not business as usual but your existing business with better practices the climate change sort of implementation of international policy is moving into a whole new business world. Right. A whole new, as some would say, as futurologists would say, the third industrial revolution. So the renewable technology-based sort of revolution. Um, you know, we've had coal and steam, that was sort of the UK and Europe's time. We've had oil, that was the US's time. And now we have renewables and, and associated smart technology which, you know, according to the Sydney Morning Herald a few months ago, is, is China's time. Mm. Um, because China really is investing and focusing and putting all attention in there. But for arbitration, the ICC task force uh, on climate change related disputes is in part looking at um, what um, new industries and new types of disputes um, what, what new types of contracts and what new types of investment might benefit from arbitration. So the ICC has a very close relationship with FIDIC, so construction contracts mm -hmm. tend to have that sort of, um, um, ICC clause in them. Well, we're seeing similar suites of contracts in solar industry, for example, wind industry, for example, where the, the different corporates in that um, particular sector get together and develop their own standardised suite of contracts. You know, we had it in maritime, we had it in insurance, now we're seeing it in these new industries. And so for um, 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 satisfactory dispute resolution, they're considering what would be the most fit for purpose. And what we're looking at from the ICC's perspective in particular is can we say to those industry groups who are genuinely trying to implement um, international policy towards lowering global temperatures or at least reducing the rise in global temperatures to not less than, um, to not more than two degrees and ideally below 1.5 degrees, um, if those businesses are doing that, is an international arbitration clause going to facilitate those objectives or hinder those objectives. And you know, some of the criticisms of some of the uh, investor state awards have been that the huge damages awards run contrary to the state's policy, which might have been good policy for the state, but just inconsistent with the legitimate expectations of an investor at an earlier point in time. Here we're talking about international policy and uh, how do we ensure that that, that is um, implemented all the way through the investment process right through to a dispute resolution of dispute and an award. And so we're looking at the features of arbitration in particular, and transparency is one, um, multi-party participation is another, um, but also just, just speed of resolution. Because when you talk about renewables, the technology is moving faster right. than the blink of an eye. There's no time for a two-year dispute resolution process, let alone mm. five years. Right. <laughs> um, 
And so, uh, you know, new companies coming up, going, the, the, the investment um, moving so, so quickly. So um, that, that's what we're testing. We're early days. We've only had our mm. kickoff meeting. Um, but we're on a, a one-year program, so we're hoping to have a report out next year. That's um, exciting. It's very comforting and inspiring. That Because <laughs> I've a few times gotten the impression that in the, the traditional arbitration community there's a, a certain degree of skepticism towards trying to t tag on other you know, boxes of law or international law specifically to arbitration. Arbitration works well, we have the New York Convention, we have the Exit Convention, mm. and there's some sort of jealousy almost, it feels like other international <laughs> human rights or, or international environmental law mm. wanted to get in on the party and in, join our success story and it's very I'm happy to hear that uh, there's, there's more, more than that. Right. There's more of a progressive movement also. We, we took comfort when we were, um, Nicola and I were sort of um, working on the, the, the um, proposal for the task force. We took comfort in the Philip Morris Uruguay majority decision where there's a tiny little paragraph with a really helpful little hook for international policy. And of course there the World Health Organization put in an amici brief. Mm -hmm. And the tribunal said, the majority of the tribunal said um, that as the US on the one hand and Uruguay on the other hand were both parties to the World Health um, Organization Framework Convention on um, Tobacco Control, and that post-dated the investment treaty between those states, that the international policy that bound those states and informed the legitimate expectations of the investor on a progressive approach um, had to be informed by the public interest in the control of tobacco. Mm -hmm. uh, so that was part of their thinking. It opened so, a uh, little it, door. It opened <laughs> yeah. a really nice little door because when you think if, if international policy, particularly for investors investing in the uh, promotion of, of, sort of transition to renewables, adaptation, mitigation under the Paris Agreement, um, it, it, it does certainly open the door for implementation of the obligations under those contracts to be in accordance with that international policy. And certainly, I think, in treaty claims, um, that you know, the, the application of the protection of the investment or protection of um, investment and trade should be um, considered at least at level with the protection of the international policy in respect of climate change, I actually think the latter should should take precedence, but, but baby steps. Right. <laughs> um, I, I made a, uh, when we were presenting the um, ICC task force um, initial thoughts to the ICC Commission on Environment and Energy, which is separate from the ICC Commission on Arbitration, I made the scandalous suggestion that which Nicola and I had, had talked about privately, and I gave it its first public airing, um, <laughs> that parties could, an investor who was in, uh, making an investment that was to develop wind farms or solar, for example, um, might put in the governing law clause, you know, this is governed by Swedish law, um, and the um, objectives of the Paris Agreement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's party autonomy. They're free to include whatever soft or hard law they wish. That's right. Yeah. What was the general reception when you aired this publicly? <laughs> Next. Um, um, I, 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 well, that commission's not full of lawyers. So there's a very few lawyers in that particular commission. So 
you know, there were a few kind of nods. Well, of course you sure. would. <laughs> um, um, and there was one fairly strong reaction that the Paris Agreement's only binding on states and not binding on private parties, and therefore you can't do all of that. So missing the entire, you know, party autonomy point. Um, but um, um, I've put it out there again. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yet so another public forum. We, we, can, we can let the idea sort of cogitate, and um, who knows? Well, on that note, I'd like to thank you guys for coming in. It was pleasant to have this duet with us. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. All right, so we are sitting here with Klaus von Wobeser, who is who just spoke at the lunch today as part of the ECA Congress, and we were just discussing the format of the lunch and how there was a lot of distraction. So we're going to use this time to take advantage of the silence of our beautifully crafted studio. Um, <laughs> and you were posed with the question, if you knew what you knew now, if you knew what you knew now, how would it change? What, what was the question that they posed? <laughs> yeah. The question was, what would you have done differently knowing what you know now? Okay. And, and, and basically and, what, what I, I said was, uh, what I would have done differently is I think that all the arbitration community in the past should have engaged more in trying not only to improve the system, which is what, what, what we did and in our different capacities. Uh, I was chairman of the arbitration committee of the IBA. I was vice chairman of the ICC Court of Arbitration. Uh, I was president of the Commission of ICC Arbitration in Mexico. And I, I have had different roles in, in, in arbitration. I have always worked uh, in order to improve the system and, and I think the institutions has, have done so. ICC has done a lot of effort in improving the rules and, and all the major institutions, the arbitration institutions have, have done the same. UNCITRAL have done a fantastic job in creating the UNCITRAL model law. Uh, the IBA has done a, a terrific job in creating the rules for taking of evidence, the rules of on conflicts of interest, the rules on party representation, and those are very good uh, rules and, and they're being accepted universally. And uh, uh, the model of Central law is being adopted in, in most countries in the world, and ICA has done a fantastic job in educating judges all over the world and how to apply the inner convention. But we have done very little as, as a group of, of experts in, in arbitration in convincing outsiders. We talk among ourselves, we talk lawyers to lawyers, uh, but we've, we've done very little in talking to businessmen, to sitting, we talk sometimes to general counsel, but uh, very little to, to, to businessmen, we talk very little to civil society, we don't talk to NGOs, we don't talk to governments, and we think that what we do is great, and, and I think it is great. I think that the, it is the best methods of resolving disputes in the international arena, but I think that the, uh, the NGOs, journalists, governments, they criticize the system, and I don't think, honestly, they truly understand the system very well. Right. And and it's our fault. It's not their fault. It's our fault. And now they want to create something else, which I think is not going to work. 
and and I, I could go very specifically in why it's not going to work. Uh, but uh, well, you mentioned Sita in your in yeah. Your... I, for example, I'm Sita, and, and and I can expand a little bit more on on, on Sita. Uh, the this permanent court. Uh, it look it it sounds very uh, nice and very attractive. First of all, who is going to appoint uh, those judges? It is uh, the governments. Uh, in in Sita, uh, there are uh, judges from each country. I, I mean, from the, the uh, from the come from Canada, then 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 the European countries will appoint some other judges, and then to, they have to agree on judges from third countries. And realistically, it will be extremely difficult uh, to find, uh, to have a consensus among first all the European countries and then Canada. And I put as an example NAFTA, where we have the three governments on Chapter 20, which is state-to-state -state disputes. The governments had to agree on, on the, the names of who would be on those lists. And they haven't been able to do so in 25 years. <laughs> in three states. And in th in three states. Yeah, exactly. So, And then the, the other question is who is going to sit? Because I think there will be a remuneration, I forget, I think at 2,000 euros per month. And then if you're on the list, you're obliged to take a case. Whenever it comes, they will not ask whether you're available. So who is, if it's a, a very experienced lawyer in dispute resolution, accepting uh, for 2,000 euros to be uh, ready, available, whenever a case comes, it's only people that are, are not busy. And you don't want those <laughs> You cases. don't want the non-busy. You don't want people who <laughs> have no experience. You don't want a, a professor who has never... Uh, uh, participated in a, in, in, in a dispute probably do not understand uh, uh, issues of damage calculation and so I'm very very skeptical right. about the, the, that system I, I honestly think it's not going to work and what I think is uh, in going back to uh, diplomatic protection I mean uh, what the investor state arbitration has done is take the pressure off the governments and, and, and leave it to, to uh, tribunals to decide uh, or going back or going to state to state uh, uh, arbitration which is all those solutions are being discussed now and, and for example in the NAFTA negotiations uh, state to state disputes uh, it's the state will decide when it considers uh, it's in its interest to protect the investor and uh, there's no standing for the investor to go and file a claim right. himself so it's going to would get very political and I think it's not going to work in the multilateral court system you need the convention of the great majority of the countries of the world and then how are you going to fund that a permanent court? Mm. Who's going to pay the judges who will be sitting there waiting for disputes to come? So it's, it's extremely difficult and putting all the countries of the world uh, uh, on, 
on the same track and, and where where you would uh, have a, a convention which is accepted by 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 all countries or most countries in the world is 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 unthinkable. It's yeah. not going to happen. But is that in and of itself now to play devil's advocate? Is that a, a reason not to to try? Because there seems to be some sort of momentum whether or not we like it, that there is a need for reform. And as soon as you have a critical mass of states agreeing that at least something has to be done, then, you know, it's a matter of public international law, what, what the states are yeah, are interested in, that's what we uh, have to... Of course, you, you can try, and that's fine. <laughs> I mean, they have we'll tried, it they have already tried, and, and I have this idea I've heard for 20 years right. or more. So uh, they can try, and, and, and nothing wrong with trying. But I think, simply, it's not going to happen. That's, that's is, it a, is it a bunch of these countries, or is it just the EU or the EC? No, I think in the uncentral working group, it's. Uh, I mean, the states would have to speak for themselves, and we will know once we know more about the uncentral work. But I, I think there seems to be a, a significant uh, amount of states who wants to see some sort of reform. And then, of course, the tricky question is in what shape or form. But I, I think it's... Uh, and, and, and the other thing, it's uh, uh, the model of, of CETA, uh, they're trying to resolve the problems. But are they really creating consistency if you have a list of judges that will sit on, uh, on, 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 on those three member courts or the appellate courts, which as well be composed by different lawyers, are they going to get consistency I think you will have consistent decisions again yeah. so I don't think it solves the problem and I think it creates new problems which I think we're going to see and again it's a matter yes it can be you can try to do it but I I'm very skeptical it's it, it, it would work something that you touched upon it during the lunch uh, which is kind of what I think what we're trying to get at here is that there's some perceived criticisms of ISDS, and then they've used this permanent court to attack those like one or two perceived criticisms and try to ameliorate those problems without thinking that that would then open up new problems, right? They have transparency, and so that you know they keep saying, "Well, wait, it has to be public, it has to be transparent," with no, nothing in practice on how they're gonna. And and for example, the transparent argument. I mean, if you take NAFTA. Uh, Arbitration in, in the NAFTA region is transparent. Yeah, it's totally public. You have Amicus Curiae. You have. Uh, uh, I I was at the first uh, NAFTA, the first NAFTA award was the Robert Asinian uh, case where 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 I, I I was part of the that panel, and I remember it. Uh, it was decided that it will be public. It was 96, 97? It was pretty well, early. No, 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 it was uh, no, 2000... 1999. No, so, I'm sorry, no, you're right. It was, it was in the, it was in the 90s, 96, 97, probably. Yeah, it started, it's not, probably. I think the award may have been, of course, a few yeah. years. There, but very, very early in any very event. Early, er, very years. early award. But I remember that it was decided that that uh, hearing was going to be public. And... Uh, they had a big room at the World Bank uh, where we had the, the hearing and uh, the first morning we had like in that room there were about 20 journalists they were there for an hour then they left 
And then the following days, I think there were probably a couple of students. So nobody, no, nobody was interested <laughs> at all. Same thing with the Vattenfall case. <laughs> and and, and it's, 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 uh, maybe you have a couple of students who are doing their LLM, international law arbitration. But, uh, but you also had to go to Washington, D.C., though, to be fair. Now you have technology that, at least in theory, like the Vattenfall case at Exit, but I was with, with a, a, a delay. But I think there are cases where you now also other Exit cases where they stream it so that you don't have to physically go to the place of the hearings because that, of course, also restricts who can, who can be in the room, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, I agree that technology now permits you to do that. Then. But again, nobody will follow it. And, and, and those hearings, I mean, unless you know the file very well. Exactly can be very boring. I mean, if I, <laughs> as an experienced arbitrator, go into a case, I don't know the case, I will have no clue what they're talking about. If, yeah. if I've not read the memorials, I don't know the evidence. Yeah. Ev- everything be, after the opening it, statements it, is just it, it, It's very interesting if you know the case. If you do not know the case, it must be tremendously boring, even for an expert. Yeah. Because obviously, as an expert, probably you know a little bit what's going on. But not really. I mean, if you don't know the facts of the dispute, if you don't know what's going on, it's it's it's, it's difficult to follow. So, uh, I th- and, and NAFTA it's an example. I mean, I, I, it, it, everything, every decision is 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 in the internet, and you can consult the decisions. Uh, you can consult everything, and who is going to really do that? I mean, it's 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 uh, uh, this perceived secrecy. Uh, in investor state arbitration, I I, I don't see it. And, yeah. and, and of course, in commercial arbitration, it's totally different. Somebody said today, and I, I think uh, Julian Liu and I fully agree with him, it is their party's arbitration, commercial cases. It's the parties uh, who decide how to want to do it. And if they want to keep it confidential, there's a right, and it's part of the, the benefit and of the beauty of, our, of commercial arbitration, which of course, it's very different, and I, I agree. It, uh, one should not confuse one system from the other. I mean, they have, from procedural point of view, there's some common ground, but obviously, the two systems are totally different. Right. Sometimes the exact same rules do apply, though. If you're outside of ICSID, you can have an, an ONCITRAL or an SEC or an ICC arbitration. I, I have had uh, ICC, I've had the Stockholm Chamber, I have PCA, case of investor state cases. Yeah, uh, the Spanish cases. Yeah, the Spanish cases were, uh, yeah, there was the Stockholm S- Chamber, mm-hmm. Stockholm Chamber. Yeah, and the, the awards are at least in, in the public domain. I'm not I, sure about the underlying... Yeah, the rules provide for confidentiality, but Spain decided to publish the awards, which many, sometimes you have rules that provide for confidentiality, and simply that one party decides to publish the, 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 the award. This is very common. Yeah. And, and most awards are uh, uh, either published because of the agreement of the parties. Sometimes there is no agreement of the parties, but the winning party publishes it, the, the award and, and that's it. So it, it's very common. And so the interesting thing, I think, is the, the converse situation in which you have states who are uh, advocating that we need more transparency in, a, in an abstract policy way. Mm-hmm. And then when they are themselves a party to the dispute, they have no interest in, in, in disclosing <laughs> the information. That's very common. 
and uh, exactly the, the, it's it's always and it's, it's the same t the, the topic on commercial arbitration where uh, general counsel say it's very expensive and it's the, the time and cost it's a big issue and, and and that's being discussed in the conferences and 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 you have general counsels and you have the the, the Queen Mary uh, questionnaires and people write it in but when they have their own dispute uh, companies and my clients and, and, and I'm, I'm counsel as well in, in, in many cases uh, they do not care about the money they do not care about the cost they want to win right and it, it's often the parties who are the ones that make the procedure more costly Definitely. Not, 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 not necessarily counsel. So it's, it's, it's the parties that want every argument to be included, <laughs> and they like long memorials, and they, uh, they push for that. So it's, it's one thing is what they say, and the other thing is what they say when, when they're, it's happening. When it's happening, when they're involved <laughs> in the case. So it's, it's, and it, that's exactly the same thing with states. I mean, they, they always say transparency, but then when they have a case, they don't like anybody to, to know about what's going on. Right. Another thing you brought up in your talk was bit, talking about counsel and how they there's a lot of technological advances that have been happening and you you were touching upon that. You mentioned copy-paste. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, it's, 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 it's really a development which uh, would this happen with computers because before computers, I mean, obviously the, the investments were were smaller in, in size, but uh, obviously the disputes were as complex as well. I mean, you, you cannot say 35 years ago everything was very simple and now it's, everything is very complex. No. Uh, what happens is with computers, young lawyers, they work very differently. What we used to do in, 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 in the old days and still probably do some of, of, of us is we made a plan, a structure, like an architect. What are the drawings? And then we build the house. Today, it appears that lawyers start to building the house without a plan. Mm. And, and I see young lawyers starting to write, and they say, no, let, afterwards I can cut and take out stuff, which, and I think uh, if we go back, I think it's, to do a plan, how will the memorial look like? Because I've discussed this with young lawyers working with me in the firm, my young partners, and they start uh, drafting and say, no, 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 no. <laughs> What's the structure going to be? Right. Give me the index of the memorial. And then we, we talk about it. How do you draft yourself? Practically, do you write by hand or is it uh, in your no, head? No, you... I, I obviously use a computer and, and uh, obviously I've, I've, I've but first I do my little notes and organize how I will do it. Because what the way we did it in the old days is we, we dictated the, the, the memorial. We had it in our head. Yeah. And we started from page one to yeah. page 30. It's an extraordinary and then ability. We, we, have it in our, we have it in our mind and that's the way we work. Right. And now it's different. Now it's, it's you change, you put it, you cut in, yeah. you... you and of course, technology permits you now uh, easily to draft something very, and, and of course you copy paste, you cut, in the old days would never quote, 
this provision and the other provision and, and so on. The briefs become very long and with a lot too much info, too much evidence. And if you have a memorial of 500 pages with 3,000 documents, if you really would read the whole thing, it's impossible. It's absolutely impossible. So there are thousands of pieces of evidence in the file you never read, you yeah. never see them. They're not mentioned in the hearing. So why are they there? Because it I, cost them nothing to throw it in and put them on the record. Exactly. Yeah. But, but then wouldn't it be much better if you have 20 really your main documents and then you would make sure the tribunal reads them. Because the, pro because the problem is which one do you read? And it's until the hearing right. that you really know which one are the important documents. Of course, from reading the memorials, you know this is more important than that. But it's really until the hearing. But if you would have 20 main important documents, you would read them all. And those are the ones that the party... So how effective advocacy is to this style of too long and too many papers which are useless. Yeah. So this is uh, my critics of, of, of what's going on now. And it's very difficult to discipline. And of course, in... If I'm counsel, a lot of the drafting is done by the young lawyers. Those are the ones that are learning, the one, but it's very difficult to discipline them and, and, and do short and more concise uh, briefs. And I, I think they are more effective. Yeah. In my opinion, I think it's much better if you read 50 or let's say 100 very well drafted. Impactful. Impactful. It's much better than 500, where you lo lose sight of, 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 of what really the, the council wants to transmit. Well, they're not building a structure anymore, and, and that's what happens when the teams are so big, and you have the juniors doing it, and it passes through 10 people to get to the top. No one's making a decision. And then you finally get to the hearing, and that's when people start making decisions. They're like, okay, now we really need to get our story straight. And then, <laughs> then cut it back. Right. And it's much easier if you do it the other way around, I, I think. But it's it's it's. Uh, but I think technology obviously has helped. Uh, uh, I mean, today obviously all pleadings are done electronically. I mean, you do less and less paper, and and, and I think that's very important. I, mean, mm -hmm. I think, and I think environment is very important and cutting, because some, sometimes you see all those uh, files, which are many 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 trees i mean it's like a wood uh, if it's a big arbitration it's 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 incredible amount of paper yeah and and i think i think it's a good trend electronic but as well i like the main piece of evidence to see them still on paper because i write on them i can uh, uh, i know the young people you do your notes electronically and all that but the uh, I, I still like certain paper, and, and I like my memorials to read them yeah. and, and, and mark them and go back and put. So it, 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 it's it's uh, probably I, I know there's a generational generational gap, but uh, uh, and 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 I, I'm convinced that it will be paperless. Uh, very, soon. very, very, yeah. very. Do do you reflect these? 
preferences of yours when you are an arbitrator when it comes to the the style of the, of submissions and memorials yes. or in, in procedural orders yes. or is it the parties yeah, do what I, the parties and, want and usually what we do is each arbitrator wants something differently and so we express what we want and then the parties comply with that yeah. so it, yes it, <laughs> so it you is. can discipline the parties a little bit exactly. and oh yes them. yes yes absolutely absolutely I have one last question before we let you go. No, you're welcome. And it has to go. It has to deal with the fact that you're basically rooting the Mexican arbitration community. And I want to know where you see. Are there any developments or innovations? You have ICC Mexico that is there, but anything else that you have on the horizon? I, I think. I mean, I think the 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 Mexico really developed tremendously. I think ICC Mexico has played a, a very very important role. We started a course uh, on arbitration, which is a six-month course. Every year we do that. Oh, wow. We have done that for 27 years. So we t have usually about 30 to 40 lawyers, and including we always uh, have given scholarship to judges. We have uh, one of our justices of the Supreme Court, uh, when, he was a, when she was a, a, a federal judge, she took that course. And we have uh, educated uh, judges, and we have uh, educated lawyers, and many of those uh, lawyers that uh, went or still take this 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 uh, course on arbitration uh, now spent full time uh, in in arbitration. So the the Mexican bar. Arbitration bar is very sophisticated. We have had about 800 people that went through this course, and uh, many are now uh, working uh, on arbitration matters. And I think we, uh, I think we are several of of, of uh, the members of Mexican bar. We are very active internationally, mm -hmm. and I have cases all over the world in Africa, in Asia, and in in South America and Europe. Uh, big cases and, and and they're not related to Mexican law they're not in Spanish <laughs> and they're sometimes some are international law some are domestic law from a different country and and uh, so I think uh, Mexico I believe in in, in Latin America uh, is one of the, the most sophisticated powers. Uh, 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 in Latin America, obviously, Brazil is larger. They have more cases than, than than Mexico because it's a bigger country. But Mexico is probably has more international cases. Yeah, and uh, and and I think the Mexican legal community is doing very well. And and we we need more arbitrators because the amount of disputes. I mean, in our firm, we have about twenty five cases as, as a council, and we often have to look for arbitrators outside of Mexico because we are not, don't have enough uh, or obviously uh, very experienced arbitration for big disputes we still need and, and we're trying to promote that and, and we're as well have done a lot in Latin America promoting arbitration yeah when I, when I started arbitration didn't exist I mean when I started at the ICC court uh, in, nine, in 1982, there had been only two cases at the ICC in Latin America ever. And today, 
the caseload uh, is 16% of the whole caseload is Latin America. So we went from zero to 16, which is uh, quite impressive. So arbitration is being used in the region, is very active. We have some very, very good arbitrators in, in Latin America. I mean, top, of the top arbitrators in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, some are from Argentina, Chile, Colombia. We have very good arbitrators from, from Mexico. So it's, it's, it has really developed in these last 40 years really tremendously. Mm-hmm. I was going to ask about NAFTA and whether NAFTA has acted as an engine to the arbitration community the same way it has in, in Canada and the United States, for example. In investment arbitration, you see so many people who used to work for the government arguing NAFTA cases because they're, for better or for worse, there were a lot of NAFTA cases, of course, consistently. Same in Mexico. I mean, you have uh, some some of the government officials that uh, were the government now are in pra- private practice. They're doing very well. And, and, and obviously those that... Were, I mean, I was involved uh, with the drafting of, of NAFTA, of, of the, uh, chapter 11 and 20. I was quite involved in in that at the time because the governments gave us a very important role in the lawyers from Canada, U.S. Uh, and Mexico. That's where I, I lear- uh, met many of our good friends, uh, uh, people such as David uh, Rifkin, uh, the, the, David Haig I saw this morning, which was from Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, many, I mean, all, all the people that were at that stage uh, and, and, and were part in the negotiations of the NAFTA treaty. And then uh, I got the first appointment from NAFTA, from the Mexican government. And that was my first case. And then I started the career, even though Mexico was not at exit and I was not on the panel, on the panel of Exit later, I, I, I became part of the panel uh, when the president of the World Bank included me in the list of the World Bank of 10, 10 uh, arbitrators. But uh, I started getting appointments on, on uh, investor state cases from different parts of the world. And uh, so we learned, we started, uh, so it had a big impact, NAFTA had a big impact, in both on commercial but as well on investor state arbitration. Well, thank you so much for taking time. No, you're welcome. I hope it was uh, a better response than the public during lunch. <laughs> <laughs> thank you very much. But uh, we're you. happy to have you. Thank you very much. Thank, I'm very pleased and thank you for the interview. So we are sitting here with Mark Cantor, an independent arbitrator as part of the ICA Sydney Congress and a fellow American across the table. It's nice to see that we Fellow Californian. Cal- fellow Californian and Michigan alumni. All of those things are Go true. blue. <laughs> um, so we have a very interesting topic, which is going to follow up on a previous, uh, some previous episodes and kind of bring us, uh, bring us home and who better to do it than Mark. So. We, you have the topic that um, you have kind of delved into very closely. So without introducing it too much, I'd love for you to just kind of set the scene for us. Well, that's fair enough, Brian. The topic that we've discussed is the role of arbitration in claims of discriminatory conduct or sexual harassment the issue arises because 
at least in the United States, employment agreements are capable of mandatory pre-dispute arbitration agreements. That's something that's true for Canada as well, but many other countries, for example, your audience in Europe will be more familiar with mandatory employment tribunals. Therefore, arbitration is not a form of dispute found for employment, individual employment disputes right. in Europe. Collective bargaining agreements and workplace-type disputes, on the other hand, many countries contemplate arbitration of those disputes, uh, often with a union representing the interests of the workers. So, in an employment arbitration context, the question will arise whether or not a claim or defense of civil rights legislation, anti-discrimination laws, or a tort involving sexual harassment or sexual assault can be the object of a mandatory arbitration clause, including confidentiality of the proceedings and the result. And that's what I'd like to talk about. Let's do it. It's very topical yeah, well, right now for obvious reasons. It's been in the news lately. It has. And it's really been in the news for two different ways of thinking about the issue. One way has been in employment agreements. For example, Fox News anchors who have alleged that they were subject to sexual harassment. Their employment agreement contains an arbitration clause and it also contains a confidentiality agreement. And the arbitration itself is confidential. Many of those disputes, there has been efforts to pull them out of arbitration, arguing in some fashion that the arbitration clause is unenforceable or the subject matter is not arbitral. Uh, those are really employment-type disputes. The second kind of issue, and I know you had a podcast about this earlier, doesn't involve our uh, employment agreements at all. It involves a confidentiality agreement relating to personal conduct of two consenting adults right. and an arbitration clause that enforces that confidentiality agreement by taking any disputes relating to Stephanie Clifford and Donald Trump into confidential arbitration rather than into the open courts. Now that's a second kind of issue. It doesn't involve employment disputes right. at all. What it does involve though is issues of transparency and public accountability. One thing worth noting about both types of those disputes is they involve questions that affect the public interest. If we're talking about an employment dispute and an arbitration clause that compels arbitration of issues that arise under civil rights legislation, then we're looking at statutory or regulatory measures Clearly, those implicate public policy because the legislature has been moved to regulate in that area, often in a very controversial fashion involving compromises in public policy views, the entire package of legislative back and forth that comprises the development of public policy. Similarly, if we're talking about uh, issues such as sexual harassment, that also has risen to the level of public policy, particularly in the United States, but indeed throughout the world right now. A third issue to bear in mind is the particular role of law firms and arbitration in this regard. Arbitration here is a device for giving effect to confidentiality. 
In fact, when we think about the development of commercial arbitration, confidentiality and privacy are often seen as benefits of commercial arbitration. And yet now, given the increase we're seeing in issues of public moment, public policy, public interest, arising in the context of commercial arbitration, we're seeing pushback on the idea of transparency. Instead of having confidential and private proceedings, there are strong voices seeking transparency. Similarly, an arbitrator, someone like me, is a private human being. I'm not a judge. I've never been appointed by a government. I've never been confirmed by a legislature. I've never even run for election for anything. And yet, there I am deciding issues of public moment. Public accountability is another issue that is given emphasis when we begin to talk about issues like civil rights, gender discrimination, sexual harassment. So let me stop there for a moment and yeah. see the questions and that you have. And all of it. So is there a, 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 I realize it's a policy question rather than a legal question, but is there truly a, a, a movement or any indication that there is a political will to one way or the other alter the situation, for, for example, by making these types of disputes non-arbitrable or, or in any other way? reform the way it is now? Because I, I, I hear, as, an, as a non-American who, who pays attention with half an ear, I hear a lot of complaining about this this private, confidential, secret arbitration. But I, I given the way the American legislature seems to be working, I, I, I'm in no position to determine whether or not it's going to be changed or if it's not a minority opinion that's being voiced. Well, there's certainly pressure to change it. And the pressure focuses in three different areas. First is legislative change, which can occur, by the way, not just at the federal level, but also at the state level in the United States. Uh, in, at the federal level, we have recently enacted an appropriations bill. That's probably something that means nothing to those of your audience members who come from outside the U.S. and probably means nothing to most of the members <laughs> from inside the U.S. But it basically implements a budget. In that legislation, the U.S. Congress renewed a provision that's been in existing legislation for a while that prohibits government contractors and subcontractors in the defense industry in government procurement contracts and subcontracts from using mandatory arbitration for any claim under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, that's general anti-discrimination civil rights protection, or any tort related to or arising out of sexual assault or harassment. That is a statutory provision signed by President Trump just a couple of weeks ago, and it essentially prohibits national defense contractors and their subcontractors in any contract under a national defense procurement from including in their arbitration clause claims or defenses relating to the Civil Rights Act or torts involving sexual assault. Why is this? That's interesting. It's a relatively specific and, and narrow point. Why, why is this sector different from any others? Is there any idea? Pure politics. Um, <clears throat> It was possible some years ago to insert this provision in legislation at a point when the Democratic Party controlled the appropriation process and government procurement is a tool for imposing public policy preferences. The Obama administration expanded upon that with a regulatory measure, not a statutory measure, that 
applied that principle more broadly to all government contracts, not just national defense contracts. When Mr. Trump took office, he revoked the regulatory measure. The statutory measure relating to national defense remained in place and has been renewed because as part of the agreement between congressional Republicans and congressional Democrats to avoid another government stoppage, they simply tried to avoid as many controversial issues as they could in the appropriation bill. Right. If it was there before, it stayed in again. So it should not be read as some sort of indication that the, the needle is moving towards prohibiting this? <laughs> by itself, no. But there is bipartisan legislation proposed by both some Republicans and some Democrats currently before Congress that would re-expand this um, prohibition to cover all contracts. It would essentially render non-arbitrable in the United States claims under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act or torts related to arising out of sexual assault or harassment. The interesting thing about that proposed legislation is it is sponsored by members of both parties. Will it go anywhere in Congress? Well, if you know the answer to that question, you know a lot more about American politics than I do. So. <laughs> I said it's not just federal law. In New York State, a similar bit of legislation has just been passed by the state legislature. That will not apply, of course, to arbitrations that are covered by the Federal Arbitration Act, but it will apply to arbitrations that are wholly within the state of New York and don't involve um, interstate or international matters. In addition to that, you also have private action that's occurring. And let me tell you a story here. I am uh, an adjunct professor at a law school in the United States. Members of the permanent faculty of that law school, and members of the, the law school visitors committee have a discussion list, an email list, in which they discuss things. A recent topic of discussion for that was the fact that a law firm out in California had included in their employment agreements with law clerks, summer, summer associates, an arbitration clause. And because that law firm knew a fair amount about arbitration law, they had very specifically stated in that arbitration clause that the arbitration clause would cover all employment-related disputes, including without limitation, and then a listing of just about every civil rights act, both in at the federal level and at the California state level. A lecturer in law at Harvard Law School learned about this, and circulated the clause by Twitter. That promoted a great controversy in the law school community, law students and law faculty. And at the law school where I teach, that led to a law professor raising this. Law professor happens to focus primarily on consumer finance protection, not know a great deal about arbitration, uh, but that is the nature of the public policy debate for arbitration in the US, proposing that the law school pro ban interviewing by any law firm that included in its employment agreements with law clerks a mandatory arbitration clause. Now, what's interesting about that is the proposal was not limited only to excluding the uh, provisions covering civil rights or sexual harassment. It was any arbitration clause. 
And indeed, the law firm that triggered this entire controversy out in California, they immediately withdrew their arbitration clause in its entirety. They didn't try to just exclude the offending provisions. Right. It wasn't worth it to them because they didn't want to get into a debate for purposes of recruiting at all the law schools they recruit at. Hmm. Now, in my law school, nothing has yet happened formally. But that's not because the pushback, and there has been some pushback, has led to the proposal being dropped. Instead, it's been elevated to a forum that involves a number of law schools to see if there can be a coordinated approach to this. So no one law school is disadvantaged in recruiting by denying access to a law firm that can be quite attractive. Now, the interesting thing about that, that's all private activity. It might, in fact, implicate state um, law schools, because many law schools in the United States are in state universities. Um, but primarily, it's a private action. It doesn't involve statutory or regulatory conduct by governments. Right. So the, the, that's a long answer to your question. But the point is, there are things happening. There's also pushback on those steps. And they're happening at the federal level, at the state level, and at the level of the private sector. But no, what, I mean, why do people, I understand that, especially right now, it's great to put everything out on the table, especially when it relates to discrimination and harassment, but why can't this be addressed in arbitration? What, what, is it, are they just anti-arbitration, or do, are they trying, do they think it's just pro-transparency, or what is their... Well, I'm going to offer you the views of someone other than me, rather than offering my own opinion on this, because frankly, my own opinion isn't worth very much. But let me quote you a statement from the lawyer representing Stephanie Clifford, also known as Stormy Daniels, um, in connection with the effort by uh, Mr. Trump's lawyer to push that dispute into confidential arbitration. Uh, he, that Mr. Trump's lawyer filed a motion to compel arbitration under the terms of the non-disclosure agreement between Ms. Clifford and this company known as EC and Essential DD, DD right? who, who one might say is Mr. Trump, but one might yeah. not say. We did, we did a whole bit on this. I'm, I'm sure you did. I'm glad I didn't listen to it. Uh, the, what he said, though, I think illustrates the essential pressure here. We will vigorously oppose the just-filed motion by DJT and MC to have this case decided in a private arbitration in a private conference room hidden from the American public. This is a democracy, and this matter should be decided in an open court of law owned by the people. Stripped of its rhetoric, that's two issues. Transparency and public accountability. Mm -hmm. The points we began with early on, that... Unlike the confidentiality and privacy that has been a hallmark of commercial arbitration, public access, transparency is an important principle, and arbitrators are not accountable to the public. Judges, in some fashion, depending on whether they're elected or appointed, are accountable to the public. So it's transparency and accountability that are the principal motives. And that raises a very serious issue for arbitration. Not just the employment arbitration or consumer arbitration that might be idiosyncratic to the United States, 
but more broadly whenever there are confidentiality clauses or confidential arbitration and the subject matter of the arbitration implicates the public interest. The issues of civil rights, anti-discrimination, and uh, Meet the Me Too movement and gender discrimination and gender harassment, those you might see them as wedge issues for the broader question of transparency and accountability. Some people focus on the wedge issues themselves and are offended that issues of sexual harassment can be hidden from the public and that someone who has been harassed cannot use public leverage to exact appropriate compensation or remediation. Others are more offended by arbitration generally, viewing the confidentiality and the lack of public accountability as serious problems. And this is an issue that they use to illustrate the point. And I return again, sadly, to the Stormy Daniels story to point out that's not about employment arbitration. That is a confidentiality agreement involving issues between two consenting adults. And yet, uh, the quote I just read to you by Ms. Clifford's lawyer makes clear that the issues of transparency and public accountability are at the heart of their efforts to pull the matter out of arbitration and into a court, which is clearly done in part for leverage reasons. Yeah, of course. Can I ask you then the, uh, the million-dollar question that you preemptively dodged already, that is the normative question, because you've done an excellent job in, in outlining uh, all the problematic issues, uh, but also primarily assigning other people's views <laughs> in the discussion. Do you think it is desirable to arbitrate these types of dispute? And, and does it make a difference if, if the parties are private or if there's a public entity involved? Does it make a difference, the, the nature, so to speak, of, of the, the, the um, substance that is being in dispute if it's a, a civil rights act compared to a, a settlement agreement, for example? Well, I apologize for sounding like a lawyer, but it depends, doesn't it? <laughs> if what we are talking about is an effort to prevent an allegation of sexual harassment from making its way into the public and causing a change in conduct in an institution, then obviously efforts to keep that confidential, in my personal view, should be opposed. On the other hand, there are serious privacy interests implicated in both cases. From the perspective of the enterprise, often they will argue that the allegation is not based on fact. Instead, it's being used for the purpose of extracting a concession and by bringing the matter into the public, they seek to obtain that concession. Similarly, think about it from the perspective of, using an example from law school, a law student who feels that they were unfairly treated and subject to harassment by a partner in the distinguished law firm of Dewey, Cheatham, and Howe. They... I just got that. <laughs> Moving slowly there. I know, I know. Moving slowly. <laughs> Uh, that's all right. The other one is good, rich, and wise. <laughs> if you've ever taught at a law school, you know those law firms very well because they are named in almost every law school exam. Problem, right. the, uh, but think about privacy from the perspective of that student. They may want to use publicity as a means of leverage, but they may also want privacy because if it becomes public, 
that someone terminated them and that they have responded with an allegation of sexual harassment. Do you think that will help them in the marketplace to get their next job? Definitely not. Clearly. So privacy cuts both ways. There are privacy interests on both sides of that dispute. But that, that brings something up that, that we haven't spoken about yet and that, that I feel as a relatively isolated Scandinavian is rarely brought up in the U.S. context, and that is the asymmetry, typically, between the contracting parties. In all of these examples, more or less, that we've been talking about so far, there is a stronger and a weaker party, and that is sort of the premise of the discussion, and also, I think, the reason why many other jurisdictions do not allow for this type of, of disputes to be arbitrated. You are correct, as it relates to an ordinary employee and an enterprise as employer. There is clearly a bargaining differential there. It's essentially a take-it-or-leave-it contract, employment mm-hmm. contract. There are some instances, and this is again why I said it depends. There are some instances, though, where the employment agreement in question has been heavily negotiated. There are law firms and accountants on both sides. There is more than just compensation in cash at issue. There could be equity kickers. There could be stock options. Uh, do you really think all of the anchors at Fox News had take-it-or-leave-it contracts? Or do you think they had negotiated contracts for many millions of dollars of compensation? Good point. The assumption that these are unequal bargaining power contracts of adhesion applies for a large number of the contracts, but not all of them. Moreover, again, I remind you of Ms. Stormy Daniels. First, that's not an employment contract. Second, it's hard to say who has the leverage in that negotiation, the person who is very powerful business person or the person with the texts. Right. At this stage, though, but when we read the arbitration clause, it very clearly envisages that it's, it's going to be one claimant and one respondent, and they are almost they are identified. It's clear from the, from the outset that this is a powerful person paying off a less powerful person. And, <laughs> but and that's because the less powerful person had a lot of leverage over that true. powerful person. Even more so, so now. In the context of that particular dispute, I'm not sure you could say that was unequal bargaining power. I don't really know. It depends on whether there are texts, whether there are videos, what they say. Right. Only at the moment, only the two people or three people or however many negotiated that contract really know the answer to that. The assumption that it's a contract of adhesion probably doesn't apply to that contract. It probably does apply to every law clerk seeking a job with a law firm. I was just going to say that. Yeah, I mean, it's you just think about the, I would sign anything. I don't even care <laughs> if I was trying to get my first year associate's position. I, you would sign anything. When and I took my summer associate jobs, I didn't even read them before I signed them. Why would you? I mean, this is like the point. Yeah. I couldn't negotiate it. It was like signing up for a credit card, right? You can't negotiate that with um, AT&T or MasterCard or Visa or American Express. Right. Those are take-it-or-leave-it contracts. We brought this up when we were talking about the Me Too movement within the arbitration community, which we can you can maybe touch on if you'd like. But we basically said that the reason why it comes up quite a lot, in my opinion, is that you have such an imbalance of power within the law firm context where you have young associates who are desperate to move up in this world. And then you have these these senior lawyers that are completely oblivious with the power they have or maybe willfully ignorant of their power over these people. And then you have this, you know, ripe field that's ready for hashtag me too. Well, there are two issues there and it's worth thinking about them separately. The first issue is the conduct of people inside the legal community, where, yes, it is ripe. 
for hashtag me too. Uh, there is some unconscious misconduct and there is some conscious misconduct, but we can't deny that there is misconduct. The quantum of misconduct, there's no measurement for it. Nobody is engaged in empirical studies, but we all know enough anecdotes to be aware that law firms are not immune from the kind of misconduct that other enterprises, government and private sector have found themselves involved in. Right. Okay. The second issue, though, is the role of arbitration as a tool for avoiding the adverse consequences to the enterprise and occasionally to the individual of that kind of conduct. And there we come back to what we were discussing right. earlier. Arbitration can be a platform that is confidential perhaps less so here in Australia, where of course you have the famous Supreme Court decision, or in Sweden where you have the Burbank case, um, but in the United States it can be a matter of contract. In Great Britain it's a matter of public policy that arbitration is confidential. Right. Uh, so the confidentiality means that arbitration can be a platform for hiding misconduct. And we know that not just from the Me Too uh, movement, but we also know it for allegations about money laundering, hiding allegations of corruption. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it's not a, it, it is often not a transparent system. We've seen a lot of pushback in the world of investor state arbitration regarding confidentiality, both um, at Uncentral and all of the U.S. and Canadian um, investment agreements, investment chapters that mandate transparency. But we haven't seen that in the world of commercial arbitration yet, and we haven't seen that spread beyond the UNCTRAL um, convention to other investment treaty disputes yet. So you really have to think about both of those issues. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you for elaborating on this extremely interesting topic. This has been a pleasure. It's the first time we're doing hardcore U.S. arbitration with a U.S. lawyer, because you don't really count, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me push back on that for just one moment. The reason why I'm at ICA talking about this is the role of confidentiality agreements. Mm. They are not limited to U.S. arbitration concerns. They're not limited to employment agreements. They're not limited to consumer arbitrations. They are not idiosyncratic to the United States. And therefore, what happens in the U.S. with respect to the use of arbitration as a confidential forum to avoid disclosure of misconduct has implications far beyond just U.S. arbitration. It has implications for commercial arbitration more generally. The old project finance agreements I used to negotiate when I was a transactional lawyer Every single one of them had a confidentiality clause. The M&A agreements I used to negotiate when I was a transactional lawyer, every one of them had a confidentiality clause. Right. You know, to some extent, they might be unenforceable for public policy reasons. Uh, if you had an acquisition of a public company, there was no point in having a confidentiality clause because the agreement was going to be filed with the U.S. Securities Exchange Commission. Right. But the issue of confidentiality and non-disclosure is worldwide in its implications for arbitration. This is just a case study, really. It's a great note to end on. Yes. Thank you so much, Mark. This has been very, very interesting. Well, thank you for your patience. <laughs> <laughs>